0: Hello everybody, welcome to the Boxing Science Podcast, this is episode 44 where I'm going to be answering your questions on a range of different subjects of strength and conditioning in boxing Some of the subjects today are going to be looking at the Boxing Science React series how to test punching power, how to adapt conditioning to injured athletes, to bag intervals and also to jiu-jitsu athletes so a range of different subjects that we're going to cover today if you're not a subscriber yet hit that subscribe button so you don't miss out on any future content and let's get on with this week's episode so the first question out of the boxing science React series which boxer trains the best right now so if you're new to the boxing science channel we run a very special series called the boxing science reacts and in these episodes I analyze and break down the training methods of champions currently, of yesterday, and also the champions of tomorrow. And the main goal of this is to explain the benefits of each exercise that they do, how this benefits them as an individual and their performance characteristics, and also a little bit of critique even there on how they possibly can do it better, but also giving people a better understanding on how to adapt these training methods and integrate them into your training program. So we've done Canelo, Golovkin, Javonta Davis, Terence Crawford, just to name a few. Which champions are currently doing the best training methods? It's a tight one because they all work towards their individual's characteristics. Each one, you can see the reason why that they're doing it. If I had to say one, it would be Dimitri Bivol. Dimitri Bivol, Works on a range of different things, he's very loose and relaxing his med ball throws and his punch specific actions really working on rotational strength and power and rhythm he also works on grip strength as well and you can see that this really benefits him as an athlete, how he flows into his shots, how he rotates and creates whip but also the snap at the end range and this is why grip strength and his core strength is so vital. A few different mentions, A Inoue He really works on his reactiveness and that speed going through that foot complex and this is where he gets most of his power and he bounces off that canvas, glides across the canvas to deliver his fast and forceful punches. A special mention to Gervonta Davis because he's made a lot of changes even though he's at really top level, he's wearing heart rate monitors, working on his recovery, he's working on rotational power, working on repeated sprint ability and then also Canelo, Canelo. I uh, did his strength conditioning react series, ran about a year ago now, clips of over the past several years, but recently he's adapted his training, he's gone to high altitude camp in Lake Tahoe. he's also working on different things such as like the air bike and the curve, and more working on hand speed and rotational power, and he's seen a real shift in his strength conditioning approach, and this is fantastic to see somebody right at that very top level that are still making the changes despite its success. A lot of these athletes work on a range of different methods, but it's fantastic to see that strength and condition is playing a big part in their physical preparation going into successful performance. And it's often like an argument that old school training is the best. However, when we see this Boxing Science React series, all the top level boxers now integrating new methods using sports science and evidence-based practices to help them as an individual to work towards their key attributes of a boxer. So it's really highlighting if these top 10 pound for pound athletes are doing strength conditioning and doing really intensive physical preparation, the new school way of training is outweighing the old school methods. So fantastic to see, learned a lot on this journey of doing the Boxing Science React series. So if you haven't seen this yet, go and check out our YouTube channel and go and check out these really intriguing episodes. How to test punch power. Obviously punch power is the main thing that we want to improve on. Whether you're a counter puncher, volume puncher, whether you're more an endurance athlete or you're a power puncher yourself, everybody wants to punch harder. To gain the knockouts, that's the main aim of boxing. However, it's very hard to assess punch power because there's lots of different elements to it. There's the speed, there's the snap, there's the timing, how your opponent is coming onto the shot. It's also whether they're going away from the shot, it's your length tension relationship, you know, towards the end range or close range punches. There's not a lot of research that supports like punch dynamometers being used in some studies, but the statistical significance and the the strength of these studies are quite questionable there's not much kind of technology out there that you'd be able to test punch power even if there was a punch power test like as in like punching a bag or a pad or anything like that it's still quite dangerous to do this because obviously you're punching a bag as hard as possible without like a, a real big warm-up without hand wraps or gloves or anything like that and if you're punching something as hard as possible high risk of getting some hand injuries, wrist injuries or upper limb injuries. With this, I don't think even with the technology, if the technology improves and everything like that, I still think that I'm more leaning towards doing a physical performance test where you can estimate punch power and estimate punch force. At Boxing Science, we use the landmine punch throw. This is an assessment of hand speed where we're using the gym aware attached to the bar which gives us feedback on peak velocity and peak velocity is a representation of speed and the maximum speed, the momentum that is being delivered during a punching action. So this is possibly the most accurate way to test punch force and punch speed. Variations of this where we can go heavier. So when we go heavier, this is showing an athlete whether they need to work on their hand speed or they need to work on strength. So if they do better at the lighter loads than they do at the heavier loads, they're most likely needing to work on their upper body strength and rotational strength. If they're doing better at the heavier loads compared to the lighter loads, Then they're more likely to need to work on hand speed Working on stuff like med ball punch throws, landmine punch throws Working on upper body speed And also rotational power and speed as well So this assessment gives you a lot more behind the punch Rather than just going right, somebody can punch hard But how do they punch hard? Is it due to the snap of the punch? Is it due to the speed of delivery? With the landmine punch throw we can tell you a lot more about a physiological profile that then can transfer into helping improve somebody's punching power. And this assessment we started doing about eight years ago now, it actually came up on my Facebook memories recently where we were testing out this landmine punch test and there wasn't anything in the research that supported this. However, we started playing about, we started doing just a landmine punch and then we thought, right, we're losing some acceleration here we're getting a lot of deceleration towards the end range let's do it as a throw so we start doing it as a landline punch throw and then we got a load velocity profile going from 20 kilos all the way to 40 kilos we've scratched out some of the tests here because it ended up being quite a prolonged test so we just do 30 kilos often with heavy weights we go up to 40 kilos as it's progressed we've actually got this validated through a piece of research, a master's student did a piece of research on this, a PhD student did a research on this as well. So it's a valid and reliable assessment. And also, this is now being used at the UFC Performance Institute. Some of the best MMA athletes and one of the best sports science organizations in the world, UFC Performance Institute, are using this test that we would just kind of made up in the gym. So it shows that. Messing about in the gym, using some numbers, experimental in your approach can have a big impact on the program that you're delivering for your athletes. So this question, it might be a long answer. How did boxing science start? So how did boxing science start? I was like getting into like sports science and doing my studying. I didn't really know what I wanted to do in terms of whether I wanted to be an s coach, I didn't really know much about strength and conditioning at that time. Personal trainer, wanted to be a nutritionist or P teacher. I most likely were going towards a P teaching route. I did a work placement where I was like not really happy and I, I weren't really inspired to be a PE teacher. So I was like there thinking, well, what can I do? my passion is training, I want to work with athletes and people that are motivated to train and I want to be a strength and conditioning coach. At that same time, I saw a video of Alex Reza working with Manny Pacquiao and Mia Khan. I was just like, that's exactly what I want to do. I want to work in boxing because I'm a huge fan. I've always been a huge fan from being a young age and I wanted to work with athletes that are motivated. I wanted to work with athletes that you have a long time with and you can have an impact on. And also showing fitness, strength and speed in the ring makes you very proud as, as a strength and conditioning coach. So that was my goal. However, there weren't that many opportunities in boxing. The only kind of jobs that were coming up were like with GB boxing, mostly not many opportunities. And also there's a lot of kind of friction towards strength and conditioning in boxing. I started working in strength conditioning, working at football clubs, rugby teams, working with university athletes in a range of different sports. My goal was always to work in boxing. At one day, I was working in the university gym, the university boxer there, and I offered them to do their strength conditioning programme for free of charge. I then contacted the coach, which is Brendan Warburton from Sheffield City ABC, who's still a very good friend of mine. We still work with their athletes at the Boxing Science Performance Centre. I met up with Brendan, and Brendan was like, right, I've got another boxer that you can train. And then another boxer came, and then my first professional boxer came. And then it just kind of grew from there. I started a Saturday morning session, where we were having a handful of athletes that are coming in, amateurs, novices, and stuff like that. And then we started getting professional boxers into these sessions. Even though I started training these athletes and had a good idea of how to train them, there weren't any sports science research out there. Myself and Alan Ruddock had to devise a testing battery so we can highlight the physical characteristics of boxers, what contributes to successful performance, what contributes to powerful punch, but also highlighting their areas for improvement. We did the boxing science testing battery as part of my masters. And with this, we created that research and we were able to put together a strong justification for strength and conditioning in boxing. With these athletes, we started training them on a more one-to-one basis and we got their results and we showed that strength and conditioning had an impact on these athletes. They improved over a 10-week period. Even though this were like a, a bit of a case study and you could go to a sports science research journal and try and get an article in there, we knew that boxing coaches, S&C coaches around boxing and boxers themselves might not be picking up the latest journal on strength and conditioning. We needed to find a way that we can spread the message. So that's why we started Boxing Science. Boxing Science, the website, highlight the need of sports science in boxing. So we started off with a whiteboard session where me and Alan put our brains together and thinking, right, this is what we need to do. These are articles. These are the people that we need to bring in. We need to do strength and conditioning, physiology, nutrition, youth training and it was all geared towards having an impact on the sport we started off with the website started putting articles on there and as it's progressed over the years we're now doing more content than ever probably less on the website now we've got products and ebooks and our membership and everything like that people can access and have a deeper understanding of boxing and boxing science and the methods that we do. The content is mostly on Instagram and on YouTube and it's really staying towards and values of, that we set out back in 2014 wanting to educate boxers, coaches, SNC coaches, personal trainers, physios, nutritionists on evidence-based methods that can help improve physical performance of a boxer but also improve the safety of a boxer as well. I feel that over the last nine years, 10 years that I've been working in boxing now, the training standards have improved. I like to think that boxing science had impact on that. And the values that we had then are still very true today. We're forever increasing our knowledge, our passion remains the same, but most importantly, we believe in what we're doing. And this is why we're continuing to keep researching keep advancing our training methods, still investing into how we share experience and knowledge that we have with boxing to hopefully keep improving the training standards in boxing. So I've got an interesting question here. Should boxers play golf? The reason why it's so interesting is because I see a lot of boxers playing golf on social media, whether it's going to the driving range, Top Golf, and places like that have become really popular in London and in America. In fact, Terence Crawford, Said that he celebrated Darryl Spence win by going to top golf with his family in Vegas. Canelo is a fantastic golfer. Is this beneficial or a detriment to a boxer's performance? I'm probably a really good person to be answering this question because I've actually worked in golf for several years. I was the regional coach at England Golf, working with junior athletes that have progressed into national level. Working professional or even at universities in America Real, real top level golf for their age group And working with some fantastic coaches as well I really enjoyed my time there and learned a lot That could actually transfer from golf into boxing And it actually helped me become a better coach in boxing Now what are the main transfers over? First of all, rotational strength, speed and power are vital for both sports Rotational mobility is really important for golf and that is really important to reduce injury and also improve rotational speed and power. There's also a lot of like faults in golf that I see with boxers as well. They're quite tight in their adductors which mean they're quite weak in their glute med. If they've not got great shoulder range, not great rotational mobility, they start compensating by using their lower back and also like kind of flaring the elbow, which they end up getting golfer's elbow, which is quite a common injury in boxing as well. Like I said, I worked with some top level youth golfers. Their technique was spot on. Their club head speeds were anything from 100 to 130 miles an hour. Their technique, there was still faults in it that were causing tightness and injuries. So for example, if they weren't rotating enough, they'll start kind of compensating using the lower back didn't get enough kind of strength through external rotation the shoulder and the rotator cuff they end up kind of flaring the elbows and end up getting golfer's elbow injuries so we're working with boxers that are quite tight in their shoulders potentially quite weak in their glutes and they've not got that optimal golf technique so they're going to end up compensating to try and get as much rotation through the shot they also, if they're on the driving range they're going to hit as hard as possible so this can end up contributing to some sort of injuries for boxing. I'm not going to say that golf should be totally off the cards for boxers, but it's about managing that load, whether it's the amount of shots that you play at top golf, whether you do a certain amount of using the drive and just whacking it as hard as you can, changing it up, using a few irons here and there, doing some of that kind of shorter challenges, so trying to hit the 50-yard mark rather than just trying to hit it Aimlessly. You know, doing stuff like that is really important. Also, getting your technique right. Maybe, like, if you're wanting to try and take it up as a hobby away from boxing, getting a coach to make sure that you're getting that technique right. The better that the technique is, obviously, become a better golfer, but also you're reducing that likelihood of injury. When going through intense phases of training camp, I'd probably take golf out of the program so that you can focus on your boxing, but it's good to do in between fights as. Active recovery or anything like that But just managing them loads In terms of volume If you're playing hundreds of shots And then also hitting really intensive shots Going to the driving range And just whacking it with a driver These can contribute to injuries That might flare up through your boxing anyway Like I said, through the lower back And through the elbow These are very prevalent in golf And very prevalent in boxing as well Once you get a boxer doing golf you're asking for trouble. I'm not saying totally don't do it, but be very cautious in your approach to make sure that it's not a detriment to your boxing performance. What are the best condition alternatives if you can't run due to an injury? Now, this is a really interesting question that I get quite a lot across social media. You know, Looking for alternatives to running because they've got some lower body injuries Whether that's shin splints or knee injury or hip injury Maybe even a lower back injury as well I often see this with boxers as well Saying after a bad performance or a loss Or if they're struggling to make the weight It's often down to them having an injury That's affected their ability to run for volume or for the intensity Now if you've got an important fight in place and you can't run you've got to find an alternative to make sure that you're still targeting them physical adaptations and you're fit enough to get in the ring there's something that i come across quite often with fighters getting towards competition because the training loads are so high often there's an injury that can end up getting in the way great alternatives the air bike because that is a full body conditioning exercise you've also got the watt bike the only problem is, is that this is quite lower body dominant and because we've said in a previous episode that cycling can end up finding athletes in no man's land because they're unable to push on and go towards red zone adaptations because they are physically fit but they haven't got that leg strength and the efficiency through the cycling technique to be able to get up into the red zone and challenge cardiovascular wise. So that's why we do a lot of what bike work in the altitude tent If you haven't got access to these doing stuff like circuits reducing lower body impact forces you can see what you can do for lower body whether you can do burpees or mountain climbers or uh, running on the spot on the pad or anything like that these are going to be reducing impact forces that won't flare up that injury doing like battle ropes doing circuits is a fantastic way to get that full body conditioning targeting central or even muscle buffering adaptations. The main way to reduce the likelihood of injury during training camp for the lower limb through running based things is to manage volume and intensity, to do maybe two running sessions a week, the rest on the air bike or on, on the watt bike as well. Not thinking, right, I'm just going to run, run, run and end up picking up an injury. Maybe like doing the curve, Instead of like running outdoors or on a track This helps reduce them impact forces Variation between air bike and circuits And the volume loads and intensities These are really important To try and improve physical performance But also reduce that likelihood of injury So bag intervals for power Endurance. So this is something that we've been asked to do quite a lot for either online or with athletes that we work with is how to improve power endurance on the bags. So there's one thing doing it on the air bike or on the curve or during a circuit but how can you make that specific to boxing? You could do the muscle buffering kind of adaptations that we do 12 seconds on, 48 seconds off hitting that bag as hard as possible and then having a rest for 48 seconds. The only problem with that is you're unable to really increase that intensity that much to be able to get the muscle buffering adaptations. So the muscle buffering adaptations happen between 10 and 12 millimoles per litre and this is done at about 90 to 95% of your maximum speed whether that's on the curve or on the assault bike or the air bike. It's very hard to match that intensity on a bike. Having such a short period of work followed by a long period of rest, probably working no man's land there is probably gonna end up being quite easy. So maybe doing a a longer bag interval of four to five minutes, but changing that up to 10 seconds on, and 20 seconds off 10 seconds max out punching, power punches not just like non-stop punching where you just tapping the bag but it's actually getting that force, that speed, intent and non-stop punching action for 10 seconds having a short window of recovery, 20 seconds and then repeating that again for 10 seconds you're probably not going to get a great adaptation by only doing 3 minutes on, 1 minute off so you want to increase that time to around about 5 minutes have 1 minute rest in between and then do this for 3 or 4 rounds and this is a fantastic way to get the muscle buffering and speed endurance adaptations and power endurance for you to be able to control that muscle acidosis and be able to maintain your power through to the latter stages of the fight So very interesting question How to adapt the boxing science conditioning methods To Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. Boxing and Brazilian Jiu Jitsu is very different. Boxing is a striking sport, whereas Jiu Jitsu is a martial arts, which is basically grappling. Very, very technical grappling, that is. So this creates very different energy demands. I'd say boxing is more aerobic, and Jiu Jitsu is more lower heart rates, more anaerobic. So there's actually a study done by De Silva et al. This looked at the lactate responses during. Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu And what they found was after the first match In a Jiu-Jitsu tournament in simulated conditions Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu athletes had 10 millimol per litre In terms of their blood lactate And this is during simulated matches This is taking away that competitive edge So in competition I expect this to be even higher Compared to boxing There's a research, a very old piece of research now, 1995 that showed that blood lactate levels to be eight millimoles per litre. Jiu-jitsu, I'd be like saying, right, that's more anaerobic. We're more looking towards peripheral adaptations. So the 30 second max out sprints and different variations, such as clusters on the air bike, full body conditioning, and also doing muscle buffering capacity. Muscle buffering capacity, trying to control that muscular acidosis so that lactate doesn't go up and out of control and end up being quite fatiguing in different matches especially for Brazilian Jiu Jitsu athletes that are then transitioning into MMA athletes where they have to do that over three or five five minute rounds So yeah I'd be saying like with Jiu Jitsu athletes if they're wanting to follow the boxing size conditioning methods to so more go towards 30 second maximum sprints to increase that ability to extract oxygen from the blood and to be tolerable to high lactates, and then also muscle buffering capacity to be able to control them increases in muscular acidosis and reduce the likelihood of fatigue So the final question, very good one I want to test athletes but don't have the budget to get the equipment How can I adapt? Kind of goes back to what we were saying before the main goal of boxing science is to help coaches and athletes understand our training methods and to be able to adapt it and use it within their training environments we know at boxing science we're very very lucky to have the equipment that we have access to that we can really monitor and detail an athlete's physical characteristics to highlight strengths, areas for improvement, and also monitor changes. But we also understand, due to the constraints of amateur and professional boxing, not every athlete or coach have access to this equipment. We designed the boxing science testing battery so this can be used in most training environments. So for example, landmine punch throw assessment, we can actually adapt that into med ball punch throw so we do that with 3 kilo medicine ball which most people have access to a tape measure and this can be a fantastic way to monitor hand speed and punch power Looking at like jump high that can be quite difficult so we use OptiJump we've got also Output Sports and Gym Aware at the gym where we can analyse an athlete's ability to jump high and the lower body explosiveness you can adapt this by using the MyJump app my jump app is a fantastic way to assess jump height, and you can do a slow motion video of an athlete's jump, and this calculates the time frames from an athlete leaving the floor to landing on the floor, and it calculates an athlete's jump height. This is a quite an accurate and an affordable way to be able to assess jump height. You can also do reactive strength index with this and then the other tests such as core rotational tests you probably can do a lateral side plank hold you can do supine core holds to assess core strength you can also look at movement and mobility drills just using overhead squat and then you can also do the 3015 15 test to assess an athlete's high-intensity fitness and all you need there is a heart rate monitor which most athletes should be able to get. 30, 15, it's 30 seconds on, 15 seconds off. All you need to do is get access to a treadmill that can go up towards high speeds. The testing equipment that you need is a smartphone that most people have, a heart rate monitor that you can get off Amazon for 30 to 40 pounds. And then also you've got a medicine ball that most gyms have, and then you've got a tape measure as well. So you're looking at a testing battery for equipment that's under £70 That's the most affordable way That you can do it Instead of spending thousands of pounds On testing equipment Okay guys, so that's the end of this week's episode Of the Boxing Science Podcast This has been Podcast Episode 44 There's a lot more content Where this come from We've got a range of different Q&As And guests on the Boxing Science Podcast So go and check that out Whether you're on YouTube, Apple or Spotify Whatever platform that you're on Follow us, subscribe to us And also leave us a like or a five-star rating as this helps boost the podcast and enables us to do more content. Thank you very much for watching or listening. Hopefully see you on the next episode of the Boxing Science Podcast.